Morning, church. Welcome here this morning. You left a warm bed in a warm house and you got in a cold car, really cold car. You came to church, so I hope, I hope at the end of this, you're, you're glad you came this morning. You feel it was worthwhile, especially those of you who might be visiting here. I know it's already been said, but if you're visiting here, maybe for the first time, really glad you joined us here this morning. I should also say, and I think he might still be in the room, is Nick here? Nick Matthews? Where are you, Nick? Oh, he's holding his little baby. Come on, got to stand up and show us Lizzie. Nick, we know you did all the work, so that's why we're clapping for you. It's like, <laughs> good job, Nick. <laughs> Congratulations, Danielle. Super excited for you guys as they welcome their first child, little Elizabeth Olivia, into the world on Wednesday. And uh, congratulations, Porters, being grandparents again. Matheson's for being grandparents the first time. Roberta and Auntie for the first time. That's all very exciting. Awesome. Uh, if you haven't been with us over the last few Sundays, we're in week three of a series we've called uh, Veiled in Flesh, Finding God's Presence in the Midst of Life's Mess. And we're drilling a little bit deeper into the Christmas story to discover that it shows us that God is present in our lives in ways that we don't often maybe see or recognize. A couple weeks ago, we saw how Christmas reveals to us that God is even present in our failings in life. In our sin, God comes to us. And uh, uh, you can find that sermon Online, if you weren't here or if you fell asleep halfway through, that's okay too. Last week we looked at how Christmas shows that God, uh, God is present even in the perplexing, confusing circumstances of our life when things seem, <coughs> sorry, when things seem purposeless or random. That God is present in those circumstances. Again, if you missed any of those, you can go to newlifestormwell.com and find them there. This morning. Uh, we're going to take a look another angle at the Christmas story, an angle that I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at the Christmas story this way before. <clears throat> and we're going to see how God in Christmas shows his presence in the ordinary things of life. Some of you watch TV, and if you've watched enough TV, you've probably seen uh, the series of commercials put together by a beer company called Dos Equis which shows us the most interesting man in the world. How, how many of you have seen those commercials? Okay, now we know who the unholy people are here. All the people that we need to pray for. I, I, I've probably seen them all. There's a whole bunch of these commercials where they show us a man who's an incredible man, a remarkable man who experiences things that you could never hope to experience. And it always ends with the tagline, he is the most interesting man in the world. It says uh, these things about this man. It says that he, his blood smells like cologne. He once won a staring contest with his own reflection. <laughs> he once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. He is the most interesting man in the world. Mosquitoes refuse to bite him purely out of respect. His treehouse has a fully finished basement. <laughs> he won the Tour de France, but was disqualified for riding a unicycle. He is the most interesting man in the world. Therapists open up to him. 
His mother has a tattoo on her arm that says, son. I like that. <laughs> he is the most interesting man in the world. And so the commercials end with this man sitting there with this cold, tall glass of Dos Equis. I was going to show you the commercial, but I thought, I wasn't sure if there was a policy against showing beer commercials in church. <laughs> and although that might be an interesting new revenue stream for the church, this, this message brought to you by... The commercial ends with the man there holding his beer with two beautiful women on either side of him. He is the most interesting man in the world, living a life that you could never attain, even in your wildest dreams. A man who probably <clears throat> you could never be friends with because he would bore. He'd be so bored with you after a few seconds. <clears throat> now, those of us who know anything about Jesus might take exception with the declaration that this man is the most interesting man in the world. We might say, hold on a minute. No, 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 no. He may be an interesting man, but he is not the most extraordinary, interesting man in the world. That would be Jesus. Jesus is the most interesting man in the world. After all, Jesus is totally unique. Jesus is God becoming man. There's only one of Jesus. Jesus did so many incredible things that no one else has ever or could ever duly. Surely if, surely if there was a most interesting man in the world, it would be Jesus. And so some of the writers of the carols we sing reflect this, express this in their words. And so you have a song like uh, Silent Night, which says this, all is calm, all is bright, sleep in heavenly peace, radiant beams from thy holy face. Now I want to ask you, Nick, you were in a delivery room a few days ago. Would you have called it calm? <laughs> Would you have called it bright? Was there any crying? And well, he just told me that he was sobbing like a baby in there. I just want you all to know Nick was sobbing like a baby in the delivery room. You've been outed, buddy. Anyway, I've been in the delivery room three times in my life, and I'll tell you words I would not associate with my experience. Calm, bright, heavenly peace. No crying. You know, away in a manger, right, which says the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Oh, this baby doesn't cry. Of course Jesus doesn't cry because he's Jesus right? He wasn't going to cry. And so the, these carols sometimes paint this picture of that night as if it was this extraordinary experience because it was such an extraordinary child. And so, uh, you know, there was no pain. There was no crying. There was no blood. There was no darkness. The donkey poop didn't smell, right? Because this was Jesus, after all, that was born. Surely his birth would be different than all the other births because Jesus is so incredibly extraordinary. But I'm here to tell you that the author of Silent Night got it wrong. He got it wrong. I, what I want to do in our few minutes together is to show you how Jesus really is the most extraordinarily ordinary person in the world. Extraordinarily ordinary person in the world. And I'm going to show you why that is and why it matters. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2 if you have your Bible. Near the end of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 2. And I think that... Um, This is, is one of the most interesting passages, I believe, about 
Jesus's birth. It gives us a bit of a different angle, and it gives us one reason why Jesus was born, came into the world as a baby. As you're turning there, a few years ago, I uh, put the question to my kids. So bear in mind, they were a few years younger. If you asked Annika and the girls today, they might give you a different answer. But I asked my girls, as we were talking about the Christmas story, why did God... Are you, Did you see that? <laughs> Did you see what just happened? Wow. Praise and disrespect. <laughs> so I, I asked my girls, why, why did God become a man? Why do you think God was born a baby? And they gave me some interesting answers. I believe it was Annika, the kind of the puzzled look on her face, and she said, God wanted to give us another holiday? Okay, we'll take it. And, and Britta, Britta had another interesting answer. She said, I think God was born a baby because God wanted a mom. Hmm, interesting. He saw all of us having mums, and he thought, I want a mom too. I'm going to come, and I'm going to give myself a mother. Hebrews chapter 2, I, I believe, gives us uh, an interesting answer to this. We're going to unpack these few verses here, starting in verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Which begins by saying, in, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that the sons and daughters is you and I. The sons and daughters are those who have, put their, who have believed in Jesus Christ and put their trust in Him. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. It was fitting, here's the answer, it was fitting that God should send Jesus into the world to make him perfect. Now, if you've ever read this, you go, oh, hold on here. Make Jesus perfect. Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Like for all eternity past, as, as, as he dwelt in heaven or wherever God is, was uh, was he not perfect already? And the answer is, well, yes, in a way. The answer is yes and no. Yes, God, Jesus was perfect in that he was morally perfect. He was a being of perfect holiness, of perfect wisdom and knowledge and power and all of those ways he was perfect. But there was a way which the author of Hebrews says Jesus was not yet perfect. He was a perfect person, but Jesus was not a perfect savior. And the only way that Jesus could become a perfect pioneer of salvation was for him to suffer. To suffer. Now, when you hear the words suffer and Jesus together, what do you normally think of? You normally think of the cross, Jesus hanging on a cross. And, and that would be true only to a point. Because when he talks about the suffering of Jesus, he doesn't have in mind the cross, or at least not primarily the cross. He has in mind a different sort of suffering that made Jesus perfect to be a pioneer of your salvation. In fact, the only other uh, time in these verses that he talks about the suffering of Jesus, it's not the cross he's referring to at all. So let's, uh, let's take a look at these verses here. What was the suffering that made Jesus perfect? Perfect, and how did it make Jesus perfect to be the pioneer of our salvation? Verse 14 through 18. 
Let's read. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. Shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And again, that's a reference to us. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, so the author of Hebrews begins his explanation by saying that Jesus too shared in humanity. He shared our humanity. Now that does mean that God became a man, that Jesus was actually a human being. And this is the great mystery that, that Jesus, well, fully God, yet became fully man. He didn't just put on a costume and look like a human being. But if you would have run a DNA test on Jesus, you would have found Jesus is fully human. But, but when it, it said that he shared in their humanity, it's, it's a reference more uh, to, to more than that Jesus is just a human being, genetically, physically, in the way that you and I are human beings. It's a reference to the fact that not only did Jesus become a human, but Jesus shared with us the full experience of humanness. That Jesus embraced all of human experience. The full breadth. He lived it fully. Jesus began a zygote. Is that how you begin? He began as a zygote in his mother's womb. Just as you and I did. Jesus began from the beginning. A few, how many years ago would it be now? It was back when I was at Providence College. They promoted this event. I don't know, Andrew, if, if this is something you saw there. Be homeless for a day. Experience, that's because they only did it once, and the second year they couldn't find anybody that was willing to do it. I thought it sounded interesting. Be homeless for a day. Anybody who wants, you're going to go to the city for 24 hours. You're going to live as a homeless person does in Winnipeg. And I thought, this will be good. It'll help me understand the experiences that homeless people would go through. And so I foolishly signed up for this event, as a few others did. And so the day came. It was a late November day, as I recall. It was wickedly cold, even for a late November day in Winnipeg. The wind was howling. And those of us who had signed up, we gathered, and it was mostly girls or a few guys. So we went into the city, and, and uh, they put one guy with each group, so a couple gals and a guy. So I think there were th me and three girls, and we, were, uh, we parked in a parking lot somewhere, and we were to spend 24 hours just trying to survive like a homeless person would. And so we did our best. We, as as it, the sun went down, it got dark. We, we found a little park somewhere in downtown Winnipeg with a few benches, and we, we, we kind of spread out. We, we, we tried to find a comfortable place to, to lie down and try to keep warm, but that was hard. It didn't really work. We needed to find a warmer place, and so 
we, we went down underneath kind of Portage in Maine there where there's some shops and there was a bank that had that ATM little room at, at the front where you could go in there at any hour of the day. And so we went, out, we went in there and we found a little bit of warmth and we're huddling in that space until a security guard came and he kicked us out, out into the cold again. And so here we were, we were experiencing what it's like to be a homeless person. Um, and, and so we, again, we were out in the cold. It was probably 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, we were on Portage Avenue. It was desolate because it's the middle of the night. And, and we were now in a bus shelter trying to stay out of the wind, try to find a little bit of warmth. And, and here we are in this bus shelter. And we can see in the distance this young guy running down, just sprinting down the sidewalk, which was interesting. And as he approached, we noticed he wasn't wearing a jacket and it was, a, it was a very cold night, and he had no jacket on. And as he got closer, we saw that he had no shoes on. And then as he started to approach the bus shelter and start to come into the bus shelter, we saw he had blood coming down his face. And so we were a little bit scared, of course. And so he, he, he ran in there kind of in, in, in a panic. And, and he had explained, well, you know, what, what's going on? What's going on? And so he had explained how two blocks over a gang had found him, had beat him up had stolen his jacket, had stolen his running shoes, had given him this wound, he was bleeding from his head, and, and, the, and he fled. And so he was running down, and, and so he kind of shared the story, and then he left the shelter and he kept running. And we looked at one another. And uh, we said, we, we were talking about that. You mean, there's a, you, mean, you mean there's a gang two blocks away? I mean, this is a little prairie small town kid. I heard of gangs, I've never seen a gang. There was a gang two blocks away that'll beat you up. You know what we said to one another? Any guesses what we said? What did we say? Let's go home. That's right. Let's go home. So we did. We thought, we don't need to be here. We know that we have a warm bed over there and a safe place. Let's go home. So we left the bus shelter. We went. We hopped in our car. We went back to Providence. Tucked into our nice cozy beds, slept like babies. Really, we, we were homeless tourists is what we were, right? We were just in there to, to, to get a little sampling of what it might be like, but as soon as the hard stuff came, what did we do? We didn't want any part of that. We didn't need that. We took off. What the story of Christmas tells us is that Jesus was not a human tourist, this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to say when it says that Jesus was made perfect by what he suffered. He was not a human tourist. He didn't, you ever wonder, why didn't Jesus just come down from heaven as a man, a 33-year-old man, and say, all right, I'm here. I'm here to make sacrifice for the sins of the world. I got some good stuff to tell you about how to live your life. I'm going to do some miracles. I'll show you my power. Okay, now nail me to the cross. I'm going to die for your sins, and then I'm going to go back up to heaven. Why couldn't he have done it that way? Why kind of start as a few cells in his mother's stomach? And the answer is, in verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, that is like us, fully human in every way. And then he gives two reasons why he had to be made like us in every way, which I'll um, share in a few minutes. But I, 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 I want you to understand this, the importance of Jesus being born a baby, starting from square one as you and I started, being born in a palace, not a, or in a manger, not a palace. 
You know, Jesus says, Jesus lived the most ordinary human life you could imagine. He experienced all the experiences of humanness. As a young boy, he was a refugee in Egypt for a few years. And then all of a sudden, you get this big block of silence in the Bible. You have these few chapters, you know, Luke, Matthew, Jesus was born, shepherds, angels, wise men, yada, yada. And then, and then now, all of a sudden, he's 30 years old, and he's being baptized, and he's going into the wilderness to be tempted. What happened in between? You ever wondered that? What, what was Jesus doing for 30 years? Why don't we hear anything? It's because there was nothing to tell. Jesus was being a human being. You know what Jesus was doing? He was He was sharing humanity. He was living your life, all the ordinary stuff. That's what he was doing. He was growing up and going to school and being bullied in school, just like some of you are. He was experiencing sibling rivalry with his brothers, just like some of you know. He had to get a job and get up early in the morning and go work his butt off as a carpenter. Jesus knew what it was like to work hard, to come home at the end of the day to be exhausted. Jesus knew what it was like to have to feed his, to, to feed his family, his mom and dad, and be a part of that, to pay the bills. Jesus knew what it was like to be exhausted, to get a cold, to get a flu. What was he doing over those years? He was being fully human in every way, and he had to. He had to be fully human, to be made perfect, to deliver us. We're also told that he, uh, it says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that he was tempted in every way just as you are tempted. Now, do you believe that? You've read that. Do you really believe that? Jesus was tempted in every way like you are. Maybe some of you are skeptical. Like, come on, Jesus. Jesus wouldn't certainly know the power, the weight, the burden of temptation, real temptation. Because he had to be different. He had to be unique. What the saying is, no, no, no. In fact, he experienced temptation to a greater degree than you do. And in this way, Jesus is actually probably more human than you and I are. Because we all, do you know what temptation is? Have any of you ever been tempted? Have any of you ever given in to temptation? Is there nobody who's a sinner here? What, <laughs> what are we doing? Let's just all go home. Why are you here? Is, are there any sinners here? Identify yourself. <laughs> you know what? You experienced temptation. You saw that cookie in the cookie jar that you were told you couldn't have, and you resisted for a while until it became too great, and then you grabbed the cookie. Right? At some point, you gave in, because that's what sin is. Right? At some point, you gave in, and you did something you knew it was wrong because the temptation overpowered you, and it was too great. Jesus experienced temptation, but he never gave in. He bore the full weight of it, which means he knows temptation to a greater degree than you do, because at some point it became so great that you gave in. You know, when you're, ben you're bench pressing, which I've never done in my life, which is fairly obvious, <laughs> but I'm told some people do this. I don't know why. You know, you, you get the bar up there, and it's heavy, and you get a little ways, and then it's just too much, and then it comes down on you. But Jesus, he... He bench pressed the full weight of temptation. He never gave in. He knew the full power of it more than you or I do. And in that sense, he knew temptation to a greater degree than you. He was more human than you 
and I are. Apparently, Jesus wasn't very good looking either. We just kind of imagine that, um, you can show that first picture of Jesus. This is how we normally picture Jesus. You throw it up there. Well, hopefully you have a... You have no picture of Jesus. Having trouble getting it up there? Anyway, maybe she'll, she'll get it up there. But you know the picture of Jesus because you've seen the pictures. What do we call it? We call him sexy Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, if, if, if People Magazine had sexiest man that ever lived, Jesus' face would be on the cover. Have you ever seen him on the pictures? you ever seen him in the movies, right? That guy's a stud. He is a good-looking guy. But you know what? You know what Isaiah 53 says? About Jesus, this was a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. It says, he had no majesty or beauty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and acquainted with our pain. He had nothing in his appearance. Oh, there he is. There's sexy Jesus right there. <laughs> I mean, us guys look at that and we go, I want to I look like that, right? I wish I, wish I looked like that. Because surely if Jesus, surely if God became a man, he would look like that. He would be the finest specimen of a man, surely. What the Bible says is no, 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 no. When God came, he became an ordinary guy. He would walk down the street and you wouldn't even turn your head. This is what he would look like. In fact, this is actually an artist's rendering. Uh, We don't know what Jesus looked like, but the the, uh, scientists and whoever archaeologists, they've taken all of what they know that a first century uh, Jewish man would have looked like and and made the average man. This is it. There's Jesus for you. Nothing in his appearance that would attract you to him. Extraordinarily ordinary and average. Even when he enters his ministry, Now when he turns 30 and he's lived 30 years of just a normal human life experiencing everything you and I experience, when he turns 30 and his ministry begins, he does all these amazing miracles which are recorded in the Gospels. But this is something you might note. Never once, never once does Jesus use his divine power to his advantage. Never once does he use his power to avoid something that you and I can't avoid because we don't have that power. He never bailed and said, I'm out of here. I've got a warm bed. I don't have to experience this. I'm God. I think this is what the author of Philippians, Paul, had in mind when he said in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 and 7, it says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was God. He was in very nature God, but he didn't use any of his godness to his own advantage. But he became totally human in all its weakness. And so at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you have him out in the wilderness. He's at the end of a 40-day fast. I've made it, I've probably made it 14 hours. That's the longest I've ever made it, and then I gave in, okay? Okay. Some of you, you've done like a two, three-day fast. 
40-day fast, and he's nearing the end, and he's just famished. And the devil comes to him and says, Jesus, you're hungry. You don't need to be hungry. You're God. You're God. Hey, look, there's some stones there. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread? You can do that. Why do you have to have a hungry tummy? Fill your tummy. Can't you smell it, Jesus? Mmm, fresh-baked bread. Jesus won't do it. Now you don't know this, but if... If, 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 he would have, if he would have turned that, those stones into bread, it would have been over. Then the cross would have been pointless because he would have avoided sharing in our humanity. He would have not been made perfect for our salvation. There was a lot on the line there. Jesus says, No. Other people can't do this. I am sharing humanity. And so he doesn't. He heals other people's wounds, but he never heals his own. He never uses his healing power to his own advantage, especially when he's on the cross. And, and you see uh, Jesus' opponents saying this about him in Matthew chapter 27, 41 and 42. It says, In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus, They said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. Oh, he had all this power to heal others, but now he's the one in need, and he can't even help himself. They had no idea. They had no idea that, oh, yeah, he could have, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He was sharing in their humanity to be made perfect. And so he became obedient to death, the worst kind of death, death on a cross, all the agony and all the beatings and the piercings and all involved in that, the worst kind of death. He suffered it himself. He didn't shirk back at all. And even you see on the cross there in his final breaths, he he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, so there he is hanging, and, and then even as, as he looks up to heaven, he sees his father turning away, this broken relationship between him and his father, and the, the emotional trauma he experiences that in that moment, he doesn't escape any of it, but he embraces it all. Jesus didn't just become a human being. He became an ordinary human being who experienced and had to experience all of human experience. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews means when it says that he was made perfect through what he suffered. What did he suffer? Everything that you and I suffer. Everything that you and I suffer as a human being. All that's a part of humanness in the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what he suffered. And why does that matter? So what? Hebrews 2.17, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way. In order, here it is, here's two reasons why it matters. He had to be made like them in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That's the first reason. In order for Jesus to become your merciful and faithful high priest, 
He had to become a perfect representative for you. A perfect representative. What Christmas shows us is that God doesn't just, I I love this, I love this about Jesus. God doesn't just see your experience. He doesn't just see your pain and, you know, up from heaven, wherever he is. He knows it. He knows it because he's experienced it. He's been there and he's done that. He's lived it. And so he looks and he goes, I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be rejected. I know what it is to be in pain. I know what it is to be exhausted. I embraced all of that stuff. As the, as the, uh, the one who wrote the song of Holy Night put it, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. In all our trials, born to be our friend, he knows our need to our weakness. He is no stranger. He is no stranger to any of our need, to any of our weakness. And so we know that when we come to God, we have an advocate in God. That's what it means that we have a priest. We have someone who can take our our needs and our concerns and whatever it is and, and bring them to God so that we might be acceptable to God. Jesus is our perfect priest, a perfect, merciful advocate. You know, the Bible says that even right now, God, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and what is he doing? He's interceding for you. He sees all of your need. He knows all of your need, not just because he sees it, but because he's lived it. And because he's lived it, he's able to have mercy on us and advocate for you whatever your experience is. In all his life, in his suffering, he has become a perfect priest, a perfect representative for you. But more than that, in verse 17, it says, uh, he was made human in every way in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God on our behalf. And secondly, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, Jesus, by sharing our humanity, becomes a perfect substitute for you. A perfect substitute for you. In order for Jesus to be a perfect savior, he has to be a perfect substitute. I mean, how can Jesus die on the cross for your sin? How can he take your place and how can he take your punishment? The only way is if he would live your life. If he would know your weakness, if he would experience those temptations, yet without sin, so that he could actually be your substitute, so that when he died on the cross, he could actually be taking your place, taking your punishment, and paying the debt that you owe to God that you couldn't pay back. His, it, it's not just the cross that made Jesus a perfect savior. It was everything, and it had to be everything. In order to be a perfect savior, he had to suffer the fullness of human experience from zygote all the way to death. And he did. It's not the cross alone that saves us. It's his birth that saves us. It's his life that saves us, all of it, which ends on the cross. 
What does this all mean for, for you, for me? It means, first of all, that the God who calls you to follow him isn't just the God who spoke the universe into creation by the power of his word and who right now sees places that we humans with our most powerful telescopes have not even found exists yet. Like that God is the God who has called you to follow him, but he's not just that God. At the same time, he is the God who has walked the path of suffering himself. He has walked your path. He has lived your life. The good, the bad, and the ugly lived an ordinary life. That's the God who follow, calls you to follow him. Because I think some people wonder, why would God care about little old me? Why would God care? Like I'm one of seven billion right now. He's so big, he's so old, he's so why would God care about little old me? I'm no one special. And the message of the gospel is no, you're not special. But the good news is you don't have to be special. Jesus wasn't special. He came and he lived an ordinary life. So Jesus, God, cares intensely for you. That's what this means. He cares intensely for you. None of your cares are trivial to God. You know, I'm always scared of boring people. Am I boring you right now? Don't answer that question. <laughs> don't answer Unless you're willing to lie, don't answer that question. I've always had this fear of boring people, of being boring. I know sometimes I am, you know? And, and uh, there's people that when they would get to know me, oh, that's all you are? Oh, kind of boring, move on. I love that God isn't like that. I love that God cares for us as ordinary, average people. Because he became an ordinary, average person person, and he embraced all of it. God works through ordinary people doing ordinary things. He's interested in the ordinary. That's what Christmas and the whole story means. And so the conclusion of the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16 is this. This is his conclusion. If this is all true, he says then in verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach God's throne with, what? Confidence. Come to God. This means we can come to God confidently about how we're going to be received. Now, I've never, I've never approached a king on a throne. Have you? You ever approached a king? I haven't. You have that one story in the Bible back in Esther, remember where Esther, and, she, and she's the wife. You think if anybody shouldn't be af, uh, afraid to approach the king, it would be the wife of the king. But here she approaches the king with great fear because she knows nobody approaches the king with confidence because if he is displeased by you, what is it? It's off with your head. Nobody approaches the king with confidence. But if all of this is true, if Jesus enters and he shares humanity and lives a very ordinary life and embraces all our weakness, then the author of Hebrews says, we can approach God's throne with confidence. 
knowing what we will receive from him, that no matter what we're going through, what we're experiencing, when we come, we will receive from God the mercy and the grace that we need. We will receive the help that we need from him. Christmas gives us that confidence to approach God. We can, we can draw near to him because God drew near to us in Jesus Christ. So, do not hesitate. I think the author of Hebrews would say, guys, this is all, he, he suffered it all, so do not hesitate to draw near to God. Come with confidence because he knows what it's like to be tired and tempted and troubled, and he is willing to help you with all of your problems. So whatever it is you got going on, he says, come to God with confidence. So today in your life, what would it look like for you to not hesitate to approach God? What would it look like for you to not hesitate, but to approach God with confidence? To seek out his mercy and his grace. What would that look like? What step would you take to approach God in confidence? Christmas shows you that God has gone before you. He's gone through it. So he is a perfect deliverer who stands ready, stands ready to help you in it. Let's pray. You want to stand with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you because for all eternity past, there you were God in all your power, receiving all the glory that's due you, and then you just laid that all to one side, and you came down, and you did not cling to what belonged to you, but you emptied yourself, and you took the form of a servant. You, you became human, and you experienced it all as we experienced it. You didn't turn away from any of it. Lord, you entered Mary's womb, and you grew. You were born. And all the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of human experience, Father, you, ex you experienced it all, Lord Jesus, because you love us, because you wanted to be for us a perfect deliverer, a perfect savior for us, so that we might approach God with confidence, knowing without a shadow of a doubt that as we come to God, we will receive mercy and grace. And so, Lord Jesus, I, I just pray that you would help us wherever we're at. I don't know what's going on in the lives of these people down here, Lord, but you know. And I just pray that whatever it is that they have, they have need of, Father, that, that nobody would hesitate to come to you, Father, but would approach you with confidence and find you to be the perfect provision for all of our problems, the perfect answer to all of our dilemmas. In Jesus' name, amen.